Fairfax Church. My name is Jessica Eitblecht, and I'm one of the pastors to students here. And I have just a couple of announcements before we continue on. First of all, we are so glad that you are here and would love to get to know you a little bit, maybe help you to get connected here at Fairfax Church. There are lots of ways between joining groups or maybe you're ready to jump in and serve with us. We would love to help you find your spot. So if you are joining us online, then there is a button on your screen that you can click. Or if you're here in person, there's a table out in the lobby where we can answer some questions and maybe help you find your place around here. So stop by and see us. You guys, save the date. September 1st, Night of Worship is back. I know you have missed it. I have too, and we cannot wait to gather together and worship. And wait until you hear what we are gonna do. On September 1st, from five to seven, we're gonna do a block party out in the parking lot. We have a food truck coming. There's gonna be opportunity for us to just gather and be together as a church and hang out, fun for the whole family. And then at seven, we'll go inside, we'll have our Night of Worship together. It is gonna be an incredible opportunity for God to meet us. I know that God meets me on our night of worship events, and uh, I know that God wants to meet with you too. If you are in need of childcare for your nursery or preschool child, registration for that is open now, and we ask that you please register ahead of time so that we know how many children to expect. Last week, we told you about an opportunity that we have as a church to bless our teachers here in Fairfax County. There are a number of Title I schools, and we want to come alongside of the teachers who work so hard to educate our children and bless them in some significant ways. And so you can stop by the table in the lobby if you have any questions, but we still have plenty of cards to give out and uh, for you to bring back. Those are due by August 8th so that we can make sure we get those cards into the hands of teachers in time for the start of the school year. If you have any questions, stop by the lobby. We hope that you are ready to jump into this Love Your Neighbor project with us. That's it for me, Fairfax. We will see you soon, and I hope you enjoy the message. Some incredible things going on in the life of our church. Um, glad you all could be here. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and a huge welcome to all of you who are here in person. Welcome to you for those of you that are joining us online. Um, we are, uh, before we jump into our, our first kind of, uh, well, it's the fourth week of this series, but before we jump into that, uh, just a few things uh, that I want to mention uh, for you guys. And the main thing is that um, I just want to say a huge thank you uh, to all of you who give generously to this place. God is doing some incredible things in the life of our church. He's doing incredible things through our church, in the community, and around the world. And we all, as a church, get to be a part of that. So thank you, thank you. Um, if you'd like to make giving a part of your experience today, you can give um, online. If you're online, you can give at the button at the top that says give. Uh, there's text to give. There's boxes in the back for those of you that are here. Um, again, thank you so, so much. So we're in week four of this series on Revelation, and if this is your first time joining us, uh, welcome to the church. We are uh, four weeks deep into Revelation, so this is a great time to, to jump in here. Um, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and um, whether you're someone who's been following Jesus for a long time, or maybe this is your first time in church, or your first time back in church in a long time, I think for many, Revelation is one of those parts of the Bible that just kind of stays closed. Um, maybe it's not seen as super relevant to what's going on today. Um, maybe it's a little confusing. 
um, or maybe it's just really scary with some of the themes that we see in there. But our hope and our goal for this series is to unveil the incredible truths that have to deal with real life stuff. And whether you're, whatever you're going through right now, God can speak to you through revelation like any other book in scripture. Before we start reading today's passage, there are a few things just to note up front, a couple contextual things that just kind of help create a framework as we read Revelation, and Rod's kind of laid these out each week. And so here's, here we go. Number one, Revelation is a letter, and it's written by this guy, John, who is most likely John, the disciple who uh, wrote the fourth gospel, and he wrote it as a letter to these seven churches that are in what we know as modern-day Turkey, and, and since um, Revelation is a letter, it means that it's written to a specific group of people that are going through a specific set of circumstances. So it means that as we read it, we've got to keep that in mind, right? Like our interpretation um, has to make sense to the original audience, but it also needs to make sense to us today and to any person reading it over the last 2,000 years, and it's because all of Scripture is the timeless, authoritative word of God. That means that in every generation, it needs to be relevant, that it has something to say to every single generation. So that's number one. Number two, to keep in mind, is that Revelation is unique and that it repeatedly looks at the same reality from different angles. So I'm gonna mention a movie that I, I wonder if anyone has seen. It's, it's called Vantage Point, and it's one of those movies that, yeah, I don't know if anyone has seen because um, it came out in 2008 and it was the height of like when Lost, if you guys ever heard of the show Lost, when Lost was like super popular, um, the lead actor of Lost, one of them, his name is Matthew Fox, and he was in this movie called Vantage Point. So the only reason I saw Vantage Point was because he was in it and I was a big fan of Lost. And so anyways, the, the premise of this movie was that there were eight strangers who all witnessed the same event. It was the attempted assassination of the president. So these eight strangers, and they basically just replayed the same event over and over again through all of these strangers' perspectives. And each time you saw it replay, you saw a different angle, a different perspective, and it unveiled something a little different about the same thing. And that's what Revelation is doing. Revelation is repeatedly going through the same thing. And so if you don't know that, you get really confused. Because like if you watch Vantage Point and you expect it to be this linear thing, you're like, wait, didn't that person like die three times? You're like, what's happening, right? And so um, keep that in mind as we're reading through Revelation. And then the last thing is that it is what is known as apocalyptic literature, so apocalypse is commonly known to us today as like the end of the world, right? Um, name your favorite post-apocalyptic TV show, right? Or your favorite post-apocalyptic movie that's about the end of the world. But the thing is, in Greek, apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world at all. It means to uncover or to reveal. It means when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before, and it's written in this poetic and imaginative style. It's packed full of symbolism and imagery, and it's similar to other forms of art, where it's not about gaining knowledge or, or, or information. It's about an experience. It's about igniting your soul and spirit to feel what it's trying to communicate. 
And in this case, it's igniting your soul with the truth about who God is and his coming kingdom. And the goal is for it to challenge us, to encourage us, to maybe take something you've heard over and over again and communicate it in this artistic way that just pierces through to our heart and to our soul. So in a couple weeks ago, just to review, um, Rod went through Revelation 4 and 5, and it's John seeing the throne room where all of creation had turned to worship God on his throne. And then there was this scroll that represented the purpose of life. And John was desperately trying to open this scroll. He couldn't open it. Nobody could open it until the lamb came along. Jesus came along, who was declared worthy to open the scroll. And then last week, we looked at the sequence of these seven seals that were keeping this scroll shut. And Jesus, one by one, removes the seals that were filled with sin and brokenness and evil, taking away their power. Now here in chapter eight, we're gonna see another sequence of seven, but this time it's seven trumpets. And um, if you have a Bible with you or there's one in your seats, if you're here in person um, or online, we're gonna put it up on the screen, but there's a lot of verses that we're gonna go through and I'm just gonna kind of skim through some. And so if you're able to have that open, it uh, might help you follow along a little bit as we go through. Um, but most of it will be on the screen. And so I have that open. We're gonna start reading in Revelation chapter eight, verse one. So when he, when the lamb, Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets that were given to them. Let's pause right there. There was silence in heaven. In chapter seven, John sees this glimpse of praise and worship in the throne room. So the chapter before, what's kind of preceding this, is he's seeing all the angels and the four creatures that are falling down on their faces and giving praise and glory and honor to God. And then here in chapter eight, the seventh seal was opened and there was silence. This massive party was happening, and then there was silence. A silence that must have been deafening. Like a silence sometimes when you witness a movie or, or a, a performance, and um, sometimes clapping just doesn't do it justice. Like sometimes there's something that is so, that inspires so much awe in us that there's just silence. Or sometimes silence comes before um, something big that's about to happen, right? It's filled with anticipation and expectation. Silence also in our day is really hard to find. I feel like we live in a world that is constantly trying to pull us out of silence. And our world becomes so noisy in busy that it just can be really hard to find silence. We think that maybe that silence is just unproductive or silence is boring or um, silence is sometimes really terrifying because if we sit in silence long enough that 
our mind will start to go to maybe some really hard things that we're dealing with, some things that we're really overwhelmed by. By being in this world that's constantly trying to pull us out of silence, it means that we live in a world that a lot of the time embraces noise. We live in this world where there's this constant war for our attention. This world that wants us to just keep doing the next thing, to buy the next thing, to pay attention to this or that. Things that claim they're worth paying attention to, right? Things that claim to give significance or fulfillment or purpose. Pay attention to this and you'll be liked or pay attention to this and you'll be more attractive or pay attention to this, it'll build a better resume. Pay attention to this, pay attention to that. Oh, you are in a lot of pain. Why don't you pay attention to this or this might distract you for a second or a minute or an hour from what's really going on. And sometimes we can just get so easily caught up going from thing to thing, from noise to noise to noise. And somehow all these things are just claiming to be worthy of our attention. And it just can get so easily caught up in this cycle. It just feels like a war, this disoriented thing sometimes. And it's overwhelming and we can easily miss the only one who is worth paying attention to. So what or who has your attention? So there is this silence here in heaven, and this is what happens next. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people, on the golden altar in front of the throne. Okay, so there were these prayers of God's people that were brought before the throne. Remember, this is a letter that was written to a group of Christians in the first century who were experiencing persecution by the Roman Empire. These followers of Jesus who were surrounded by affluence and power but were marginalized because of their faith they were powerless. They didn't have a vote. They didn't have a power to control uh, or change their circumstances. And what, what was happening? What were they doing? Where did they turn? To whom or what did they give their attention in the midst of those circumstances? Well, they prayed. They turned their attention towards God. There was silence in heaven and out of the silence, the prayers of God's people were heard. It was out of the silence that something happened. There was action. This angel comes before God with the prayers of God's people and a golden censer which carried this incense. And the incense is this mixture of herbs and spices. It was used through the Old Testament as as an offering, as, as to symbolize this act of devotion. It's this physical symbol of the prayers of God's people rising. And as the incense would burn and the smoke would rise, it would symbolize the rising of the prayers of God's people. It's like in Psalm 141, one and two. 
I call to you, Lord. Come quickly to me. Hear me when I call to you. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. And the burning of this incense represented what they were giving devotion to, right? What they were paying attention to. And then in verse four, we see the angel take the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people and went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Why is there fire raining down on the earth? Whatever this fire is, it's falling in response to the prayers of God's people, the laments of what is wrong in the world. Like what we find in Revelation 6, 9, just a couple chapters prior, where they're People of God are crying out, how long, Lord, must we endure? How long, how long until your kingdom comes? Though the prayers of people who live in a broken, sinful world, they're desperately crying out for God to come to intervene. The prayers of the powerless, the prayers of the powerless were heard in the silence of heaven. These prayers were combined with the fire from the altar and sent down to earth. The prayers of the powerless came back in force. They came back with power. And somehow these prayers of the powerless now arrive in thunder. They're shaking the earth. There's flashes of lightning power. The power comes from the fire. Fire was often used throughout scripture, often represented God's spirit, God's presence. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 12, 49. I have come to bring fire on earth. Jesus is the God of the universe made flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, the presence of God on earth. And he came in response to what? The suffering, the, 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 the cries that this is not how it ought to be. That this world that is filled with brokenness and sin and evil there needs to be an intervention, a powerful intervention. And God's presence came. Jesus saying, I have come to bring fire on the earth. He came to tear down the systems of oppression. He came to heal the sick. He came to defeat sin and death that separate us from being in intimate relationship with God. So this fire represents that God is not a distant or disconnected God, but that he is a present and he is alive. He is a God who is actively paying attention to our cries and our prayers. And he is responding, intervening on our behalf. 
The fire falling is followed by the seven trumpets, starting in verse 6. Trumpets were used throughout Scripture, often to announce and to proclaim and to declare the arrival of something. Trumpets are loud. They get your attention. They center your attention on what is happening or what is about to happen. The trumpets following the fire, the coming down of God's presence, they're here to announce and proclaim the arrival of God's kingdom, that God has come to fulfill a promise that he made to Abraham to come and redeem and restore creation to what it was meant to be. Now we're gonna read in the rest of eight what happens with the first four trumpets. Well, as we're kind of going through these trumpets, just again, um, I'm, we're not, I'm gonna have to summarize a lot of it because we could spend hours on all of this and, and digging into the imagery and all of that here. Um, so we're just kind of give a big kind of overview. So verse six, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And then the first four trumpets are one after another. They're right, right in succession like the first four seals from last week. Verse seven, the first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth. The second trumpet in verse eight, the angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. And then in 10, the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. And then the fourth in verse 12, sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun, the moon and the stars was struck so that a third of them turned dark. So a couple big picture things. Do you notice the echoes of creation? The creation narrative? The presence of God has come down on the earth and it reaches the land, trumpet one, the sea, trumpet two, the sky, the moon, and the stars, trumpets three and four. This, the presence of God, this presence of God, the God who has come to uproot sin and death and evil in the world, is the creator of all things. He has dominion over all creation. It is a presence of God that is all Encompassing, It is a God who has the power to defeat evil and sin in the world. Sometimes when we come to face-to-face -face with just um, circumstances in our life where we feel powerless to deal with them or powerless to change them, sometimes our first thing is not to turn our attention to God. It's not to turn our attention to the one who has the power over all creation. And we can turn our attention to something else that we feel like has the power to right the wrong, to rescue us from what is happening. The second thing to notice, the end of each of these trumpets, 
there's this imagery. And you'll see at the end of each of these trumpets in those verses, it says, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the ships were destroyed, and so on, right? Now remember, this imaginative style of literature doesn't literally mean a third of the earth was burned up or that it will burn up. What we're seeing here is that, yeah, things in the world are not how they ought to be. I think most of us would agree with that, that things that are happening in our world, like human trafficking, we would agree that that is not right. Whether we believe in God or not, I think that God has placed this compass inside of us where we see these evil things, racism, world hunger, homelessness, abuse, and we just go, man, that's not how it ought to be. And we can see these things in our broken world. And maybe that we sometimes can convince ourselves or that we act or kind of move through life in a way that we can eradicate those things on our own power. That we don't actually need this miraculous intervention from God, this, this intervention from God depicted in this fire falling over creation, having this dramatic effect that things need to be different. Things ought to be different. Sometimes maybe we act in a way that we can fix these things in our own power. Or maybe we think that, oh, it's not that bad. Or at least it's not that bad in my life or in my neighborhood or in my family or in my country. The thing is, is that maybe in our Western culture, we kind of have this idea that we can build this utopia, this world that is without evil, this world that is without all of this brokenness. And as um, a pastor and author, Mark Sayers, says in his book, Disappearing Church, he says, sometimes we want the kingdom without the king. Sometimes we want what only God can build, this kingdom of heaven where God has defeated all sin and death and evil. Sometimes we want that. We want the benefits of that. But we don't want to, we don't want to surrender to God. We don't want God to have any control or we think that we can do it all in our own power and that God is, we don't need your intervention. Sometimes maybe we can have that mindset as we're going through life. But here we see that God is proclaiming that his kingdom is coming. That creation, yeah, creation is marred by sin and death and evil in the world, but this God that loves us so much does not wanna leave us in it, but has come. He has heard the cries. He has heard the prayers. He has come so that, that we may have life. And these trumpets that are sounding, God is desperately wanting our attention. And then look in verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle 
that was flying in the air call out in a loud voice, whoa, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to sound by the three angels. This cry of the eagle, these trumpets sounding, that God is trying to pierce sometimes this spiritual blindness or deafness that we can have that we cannot see or hear. What God is doing, what God has the power to do, he is calling us. What we're looking for is right there. He says, I'm right here. And then we come to chapter nine, which is full of imagery that could come straight out of your worst nightmare or the last horror movie that you saw. We won't have time to go through all 19 of these verses that are with the second, these next two trumpets. But to summarize, the fifth trumpet, we see this black hole, this abyss that has this smoke rising out of it and it's distorting all of reality. And an army of demon locusts with a captain named Destroyer are pouring out of it. And then after the sixth trumpet, there are these four fallen angels that are bringing death. And in this chapter, this black hole, we see this symbolism for what sin and evil and this, the brokenness in our lives, what it can do what it does. A black hole does not give life. It takes life. It's bottomless. It's a black hole that can bubble up inside all of us. And no matter what we try to put in it, it will continue to take more and more. It's endless. No matter what we may be turned to for attention or turned to for rescue. What we turn to to experience a wholeness or a renewal or a healing or a fulfillment. There is nothing that can fill that hole, that abyss. And then the fallen angels that are bringing death, it's this death that represents our separation from God. The sin and death that just separates us from being in relationship with our creator. We just get this vivid imagery of the destructive power of sin and evil in the world. And then we come to the end of chapter nine. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plague still did not repent the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, and bronze, and stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. When we come face to face with the brokenness in our lives and in the world, we can feel powerless to change our circumstances, feel powerless to right the wrongs. But what we've seen is that God has declared and announced that he has come, that he has fallen over creation, that, that the presence of God is here and that he has the power to uproot the world of all brokenness, sin, and death, and he is trying to get our attention. He wants to have a relationship with you and with me. And what we see at the end of Revelation 9 
is that there are sometimes those that turn their attention not to God, but to idols, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. These are all materials of things you can make something look really cool out of. But what do they all have in common? They cannot see, they cannot hear, and they can't walk. And what, what we turn our attention to is ultimately what we give our devotion to, and it shapes who we become. And so when we turn our attention to something that does not give us life back, does not listen, does not see us, then we become lifeless. We become in a way that we cannot see or hear the destruction that is going on in our lives and around us. John Mark Comer is a great pastor and author, and um, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, it's a, it's a really great book. Uh, the subtitle is How to Stay Emotionally, uh, um, let's see, Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. And a quote from his book is this, attention is the beginning of devotion. What you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul. What you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. And in the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you give your attention to. This war for our attention is whether we're aware of it or not, is shaping us second by second, minute by minute. And it can be easy sometimes to just go blow through life, worrying about the next thing, checking off the next box, the next thing that we need to accomplish. Or maybe we're going through life and we're trying to deal with some brokenness in our lives that is causing us overwhelming pain and we turn to all kinds of things to distract us or to numb us or to heal us. But in the end, there is only one who is worthy of the center of our attention. And when we choose to not turn to something that has no power, like that's made of stone or wood or gold, these things that might look great, but in the end have no power, to heal or transform us or to make anything different in the world and in our lives. When we turn our attention not to those things, but when we center our attention on God, earth-shaking things happen. Remember back in chapter eight, there was silence in heaven and out of the silence of heaven came what? The prayers of God's people God is listening. Heaven is listening. The prayers of God's people were heard. These, these God's people who were facing persecution would come face to face with the brokenness in the world, in their own lives and around them, feeling powerless to do anything about them. What did they do? They did not turn to Caesar like everyone else. They did not turn to this idol made of wood or this idol made of gold or these things that look appealing, that claim to have some kind of power, but don't. What did they do? They prayed. 
They pray to the one who listens, to the God who is alive, who is present, who is Emmanuel, God with us. He is listening. And God doesn't just listen and be like, oh, that sounds great or sounds horrible. God isn't just listening. What does he do in response? How does God intervene? He comes down, blowing trumpets, announcing the arrival of this kingdom, announcing the arrival of this kingdom that has come to heal and restore, to burn down the evil and oppressive systems, to free us from this black bottomless pit that threatens to take control of us or claim us. God is listening and in our powerlessness. When we turn to God, we turn to the one who has the power. God is worthy of our attention. He desperately wants my attention, your attention. Now, what does it look like to give God our attention? It means we prioritize in our life being with God. And yeah, that means that we might have to reorient our lives. We might have to say no to things to say yes to being with God. Prayer focuses our attention on God. In Revelation chapter one, John shares about the circumstances with which he is seeing this revelation. Where is John as he's seeing all this, right? Look in chapter one, verse nine. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is saying that he was in exile because of his faith, because of his work in spreading the gospel. He was isolated. He was removed from any kind of help or rescue. He was a prisoner. He, was, he had no control to change his circumstances on that island. No control to change his environment. His freedom was taken because of the stroke of a pen by someone that had more power than him. He was no longer allowed to do this work that he was passionate about. No more conversations with those he loved. Man, can't we all feel powerless sometimes? Sometimes we can relate to this feeling of being in exile, this being removed from where we want to be or whom we want to be with. In the first century, it was considered one of the worst possible punishments. Why? Because you're alive, but you're separated from friends and family and community and connection. These things that are um, at the core of what it means to be human is to be in connection, taken from John. But then look what John says also about what's happening on this island. In verse 10, he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I was in the spirit, literally translate as he came to be in spirit. John came to be in spirit. 
John was on his knees praying on this island in the middle of his exile, in the midst of powerlessness and suffering, he was praying. He's not just thinking about God or talking about God to others. He was being with God. He had turned and centered his full attention on him. And to pray is to be aware of God, to intentionally enter in to the speaking and listening relationship with the creator of the universe, being in this posture of being attentive before God. Whenever we concentrate or focus or turn our attention towards God, we are in prayer. The practicing of our attention on him, the nurturing and development of our personal relationship of just being before God. Throughout Revelation and all of Scripture, we see that God is speaking, that He's showing up, that He commands things, that He's blessing things. But in order for there to be a relationship, in order for Him to be heard, there must be someone to see, to hear what God is saying. And when we are turning our attention to all these things that have no power, what do they say? It says we become like them where we cannot see or hear or walk. But when we turn our attention to God, we are turning our attention to someone who is seeing us and listening to us and is moving. When this revelation came to John, he wasn't just hanging out on a Sunday on Patmos, eating chips and watching Space Jam or whatever, you know? That stuff was, that's great. But he wasn't just hanging out on his Patmos, you know, in this exile where he's like, man, I have nothing. I can't do anything with what's going on. He was waiting, he was prepared. He was postured to receive from God. See, the gospel is all about moving us away from talking about God to talking to him, to being with him. John is on his knees in this position to hear, to listen, to receive. He's not getting caught up in the exact right way to say something or the exact thing he needs to do or whatever. He's just pausing and stopping and slowing down, just being with and before Jesus. And what did he say next? He said, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then in verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw. He says, I heard and I saw. He was on his knees, right? And everything came into focus and everything came and he started to hear and see God. See, prayer combines the experience that John is having on this island, this place of powerlessness, combining that with the power of the throne room, 
the power of where these prayers are heard and answered. It's this realization of, yeah, the powerlessness to change our circumstances, but at the same time realizing that we are invited to participate in God's power. That, yeah, I can do nothing, but God can do anything. Until we come to this place of exile, until we come to this place where we realize that we are powerless to change our circumstances, that no matter what I give my attention to, there's all these things that look great. But no matter how much I look to them, I'm still coming up empty. No matter how much I perform, no matter how much I turn my attention to this or that, in the end, I'm still powerless to change some of the things in my life. It's when we realize that, and sometimes we can't even realize that until we're willing to slow down. Sometimes we can't even realize that until we're willing to sit in the silence. It's not until then when we are open and postured to receive and hear and listen to God that we can receive God's fullness John seeing and hearing that led him into this revelation came to him in this posture of prayer. And to to be in relationship with God is not just about gaining this knowledge or information and knowing, knowing more and more about who he is. But first, it's just about being with him, reordering your life in a way that you are sitting before Jesus in prayer, not doing, not doing more, not doing more, but being. And at the end of this revelation, Revelation twenty two twenty, John is still praying. He says, amen, come Lord Jesus. This entire revelation is coming to John in this posture of prayer. By centering our attention on God, everything comes into focus. When we feel powerless or that we're trying to come, that we've come face to face with our brokenness of our life and in the world, man, it can feel like our life is disoriented. It can feel like it's in bits and pieces, chaos. But when we turn our attention to God, things are brought to order. Prayer is directing all of our words, all of our gestures and our feelings and our needs to God. And in the process, we are not undone, but we are assembled. We are made new. We are transformed. The last thing is by turning our attention to God, we aren't just spectators in watching God actively work in the world. We turn our attention towards him. We are a part of actively participating in the work that God is doing. God is doing redeeming and restoring work. And we don't just sit back and watch. We get to actively participate in what he is doing. Remember the trumpet here. He's using this image that 
the first century Christians would have known really well this idea of the trumpet, this thing that was signaling the coming of the announcing of something. Trumpets to them would have sparked the story of Joshua in the Old Testament. Israel, after years of trials and suffering, wandering, they arrived at the promised land, only to find it blocked by this massive fortress, this walled city of Jericho. And what they had hoped for, what they had promised, been promised, this stood in the way. Jericho had a reputation that nobody breached those walls. And the Israelites had no weapons. They had no means to breach these walls. But only they did have the only thing that could. Prayer breached those walls. Look at what, what is, look at what's said in Joshua 6. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given into your hand Jericho. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. The priests blowing the trumpets, and when they make a long blast, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. The wall of the city will fall. They were praying circles around these walls. Not in their own power. Not in their power with these mighty weapons to bring down this impenetrable wall. They were praying circles around these walls. Praying to the one who has the power to bring them down. Prayer has power. Remember back in chapter 8 that we read earlier. The imagery of the prayers of God's people rising to heaven. And they were combined with fire from the altar. This, they were combined with what symbolizes God's presence and God's power and dominion over the world. They were returned to earth and there were earthquakes Prayers of God's people were heard, and they weren't just heard. They were a part of God's work in the world. They were shaking the very foundations of the world. Prayer has power because we're praying to the one who is all-powerful. When we pray, we are participating in God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer lands us and invites us and makes us a part of this new kingdom, transforms us from the inside out. Because in Christ, we have this restored relationship with God and we are sent into the world to be a part of his redeeming and restoring work. The trumpets proclaim what God is doing in answer to our prayers. We can see and hear what he is doing when we have our attention on him. We get to participate in this incredible work. The trumpets keep us from sleeping through what God is trying to do in our lives and in the world around us. 
and they remind us again and again that, hey, God is God and we are not. The seventh trumpet comes in Revelation eleven fifteen. John sees the angel sound the seventh trumpet and it opens this heavenly scene of answered prayer. And you just see the faithful who have prayed this prayer. God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And now we see that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We see the last trumpet the answered prayers, the prayers saying, God, let your kingdom come. And we see that, yeah, it, it, has, it has come. That this kingdom has come to confront all the brokenness of the world, the brokenness in our lives, the brokenness that we feel powerless to do anything about. God has announced that he is now in charge and he brings a message that the lamb suffering love conquers all. The presence of God has now come on the earth and he invites all of us to be with him, to experience new life in his kingdom. And all we have to do is be willing to center our attention on him. We get to be in this intimate relationship with God where we are transformed from the inside out and we get to be a part of what he is doing in the world. So what, where are you putting your attention? Maybe there's a certain part of your life that you are turning your attention to that's maybe looks good but it's not God. Maybe we need to reorient our lives around not doing all these things, going from all these things to things, things that may be great, but what if first we just learn how to be with God, to be at the feet of Jesus, to pray prayers that shake the world. Let's pray. God, we know that you are here. We know that you are listening. God, you know each and every one of our hearts. God, you know the things in our life that bring us to our knees. God, you know the things in our life that we feel powerless to change. God, you are listening, God, and we pray God, for your power to come into our lives and into our world. God, we pray for restoration and redemption. God, we pray for healing. God, we pray that you would make us more like you. God, we pray that you would show us, let us see and hear the incredible work that you are doing in the world, God. So God, we give you everything. God, we thank you for this incredible gift of your kingdom. Pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.